We welcome you to healing stories about pivotal experiences, accepting treatment, redefining identity, where we create space for our guests to answer our compelling question, what does healing mean to you? It's New Year's Day 2011, and my girlfriend Carol and I have just spent an awkward New Year's Eve together at her place. I knew our relationship was in trouble because we'd spent most of the night being very quiet around each other. It wasn't the quiet of two lovers staring into each other's eyes. It was the quiet where there's nothing left to say except a thing no one wants to say. See, I'm the kind of guy that when I sense I'm losing someone, I get really sweet. Flowers, cards, love notes, the whole thing. You ever see a little kid drowning a waffle in syrup? You can't even see the waffle under all that syrup? Well, that's me. We'd been together seven years, and for the last year, I'd been drowning this relationship waffle, this love waffle, in all kinds of syrup. And all I'd done was make it worse. After we got out of bed, I got dressed, and I said, I'm going to go down the street and get us a couple of coffees and a newspaper. Just before she closed the door behind me, I heard her say, Paul. I turned around, and I saw her face framed in just the two inches that the door was open. And she said, I'm sorry, you can't come back. And then she quietly shut the door. And I'll never forget the sound of that click. It was the click you hear just before a bomb goes off. And that's how it felt, like a bomb went off in my heart. And that began a two-year descent into depression that I could never have imagined. Drinking, starving, sleeping, weeping, staring into space, suicide hotlines. Here's a tip. If you're running a suicide hotline, 70s soft rock is the worst hold music. All by myself, don't want to be all by myself. You got that music plan, you're going to get a lot of hang-ups. Anyway, one of the worst things I did during this time was not tell anyone what I was going through. It was too embarrassing to admit that a girlfriend leaving me was hitting me this hard. I once heard a friend of mine making fun of a guy who was taking longer to get over a relationship than the relationship actually lasted. I've never forgotten that. It showed me where I stood in the world. Never show anyone how much you're hurting. What made it even harder was that I couldn't tell how much of this was grief and how much was depression. To me, grief feels like my heart stopped beating, but I'm still alive. Depression feels like I'm falling out of the sky, but I never hit the ground. Like I'm going to spend the rest of my life helplessly falling to a death that never comes. When you think about depression that way, it's easier to understand why some people choose to end their lives. That's why I tried to end mine. Luckily, in the middle of one terrible night, two years after that breakup, When I did try to end my life, I ended up calling a crisis line and got a guy on the phone who kept me talking until I agreed to stay alive for one more day. The next day, I woke up, and I had no idea how I was going to live the rest of my life. I knew I had to change, but he didn't know what I was supposed to change to. What does a healthy person look like? What do they sound like? God, I hope I don't have to buy a kayak. Happy people are always out paddling or hiking, They're wearing clothing that wicks away moisture. Is there a shirt that wicks away grief and self-pity? Because that's the shirt I need. Well, apparently, nobody makes that shirt. 
so I started looking for people who were happy and well-adjusted. You'd be surprised at how hard it is to find them. None of my friends were happy and well-adjusted. That's why we're friends. If you think the world is full of pit bulls and thumbtacks, you do not want to hang out with someone who thinks it's made out of poodles and pop-tarts. The poodle people totally threaten your whole belief system. But that's what I needed. I needed to shake up the core beliefs I had that led me to where I was. Somehow, a few months later, I found a group of people who seemed much happier than they should have been. They weren't on Facebook. They weren't in self-help workshops. I found them in dirty little church basements. They weren't part of any congregation. They were addicts. People who couldn't stop hurting themselves until one day they found themselves either literally or figuratively curled up on the floor. Just like me. It's a long story about how I ended up sitting in a room with a bunch of addicts, but that's where I was. And I gotta say, my first reaction was that these people say a lot of stupid things. Stuff only a fool would believe, like feelings aren't facts, and you're not completely worthless, and the one that really got me was don't believe everything you think. Years ago, someone said that to me, and I actually got mad at him. I said, you know what I think? I think what you think about what I think is something you don't need to be thinking about. See, that's what you say when you're scared, when somebody says something to you that makes you feel like they know you better than you know yourself. Well, after a while, these people wore me down. Part of it was the sayings and the steps I was working on, and part of it was watching the people in those rooms forgive each other. I'd never seen that before. You know, the one thing addicts have in recovery is relentless forgiveness. You'll be sitting next to a guy on Friday who has 25 years sobriety. Then you'll be sitting next to the same guy on Monday who has one day of sobriety. And all anyone says is, welcome back. We're glad you're here. Nobody says, how could you? What's wrong with you? What were you thinking? And that is how I slowly pulled myself out of depression. The cynicism I had toward life melted away one meeting at a time. I stopped trying to be clever and instead chose to believe what I heard in those meetings. And it was a choice, just like it was a choice to believe all the bad things I told myself before. If I'm looking for evidence that I'm unlovable, I'll find it. And if I don't find it, I'll make it up. I had to stop that. I had to stop believing everything I thought. But what a What do I replace those things with? Now that I know how to stop hurting myself, how do I start healing? How do I get to happy? See, all my life, I wanted to be happy. And I could never figure out why some people were happy and some weren't. And then one day, I realized that to be is a verb. If I want to be happy, I have to do things that make me happy. Happiness is a byproduct of doing things that give me joy and satisfaction. And that's when I finally started doing all the things that doctors and therapists have been trying to get me to do for years. Eat healthy, exercise, get enough sleep, spend time with friends. Thinking is great for solving problems, but not when the problem is you. So for the next five years, I focused on everything that brought me joy and satisfaction. And every year, I got a little better. Fewer things knocked me down, and I found more things that pulled me up and out of myself. I was happier, stronger, and more productive than I'd ever been.
But then, one day. And there's always a but then one day. There has to be. There's got to be something that knocks you upside the head and tests your recovery. For me, it was June 10th, 2017. I was attending a conference in town for people recovering from all kinds of things. Mental health stuff, addictions. It was open to the public, so I decided to see what it was all about. I'm sitting in this big ballroom, waiting for the speaker to begin, and out of the corner of my eye, I see this giant arrangement of flowers moving from the back of the room toward the stage. And I'm taken back ten years before, when I worked with Carol in the flower shop she owned. They were some of the best years of my life. I was surrounded by beauty and the woman I loved. And as the flowers neared the stage, I saw that it was her. It was Carol, the woman who started me on this journey five years ago with the click of a door closing forever. Of all the flower shops these people could have called, they called hers. And I began to shake. See, I'd, I purposely avoided any mention or reminder of her since we broke up. If I saw her car in the parking lot of Trader Joe's, I pulled back onto the street and went to Whole Foods. I changed the way I drove through town so I wouldn't have to drive by her shop because I didn't want to be tempted to look in the window. I gave away all the furniture we ever shared. I hid every gift she'd ever given me in the back of a closet. I was so worried about being drawn back into the past that I removed everything from my life that reminded me of it. And suddenly, it all came rushing back. Right there in that ballroom with 300 people. The memories, the pain, the loss... All the work I'd done to move on and get healthy went out the window. And I ran. It hurt so much to be in the same room with her for even a minute that I ran out of the room, out of the building, into my car and drove as fast as I could away from there. As I drove across town trying to put as many miles as I could between me and her, I started to feel something more than just pain. Disgust. Anger. Disappointment. All the work I'd done to get over this, and the first time I put her to the test, I fail? An old lover who bears me no ill will walks into a room and I have a panic attack? Every mile I put between me and her was a smack on the back of my head. All that work and you failed again. Stupid, worthless, weak little Paul. Now all I want is a place to hide. A place that doesn't remind me of screw-ups and failures. And I remember just down the road is St. Martin's Abbey, a Benedictine church and university that's hidden in a little forest on the outskirts of town. I'd only been there a few times to walk around, but it always felt good. It's one of the few places in town that doesn't remind me of anything. So I pull in, park the car, get out, walk up to one of those big hundred-year-old trees, and I sit down. I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I know i got to stop running. So I close my eyes and I go back to that room across town where I can see her holding those flowers and walking toward the stage. And I try to remember all the things I'm supposed to say in these moments, all the things I learned in those rooms from all the people who'd been there before me, and I couldn't remember a single thing. And maybe that was the reason I was there on that bench under a tree outside of St. Martin's Abbey. Maybe all those sayings I'd been repeating the last five years had taken me as far as I could go, and now I needed to come up with my own words, 
my own language, my own way of telling myself that I was worth something or worthy of something. And I thought back to all the notes I've written, all the gifts I've given, all the miles I've driven to show up at a woman's door with a flower I stole from a house down the street, and I realized they were all tricks. They were all tricks and misdirection. I did those things so I could get something in return. I wasn't actually giving anything. They were all just empty boxes and fancy wrapping. I guess it makes sense that no matter, no matter what anyone gave me, it was never enough. Because it'll never be enough until I fill that emptiness inside me with my own love and my own gifts. And as I was thinking this, the strangest question came to me. What would I do if I already felt that way? I would send her love and wish her well. It was the only thing I could think of. So I just sat there repeating those words in my head. Send her love and wish her well. Send her love and wish her well. Well, when I finally opened my eyes, I wasn't shaking anymore. My breathing was slow and steady. I looked at my watch and saw that I'd been sitting there for 20 minutes. It was the safest 20 minutes of my life. For this one tiny moment in time, I had everything I needed. I wish I could say I'd been living that way ever since, but I can't. I've only been able to catch glimpses of that place since that day on the bench, but sometimes I get close, and it reminds me that it's possible to get there again. And when I think of Carol now, I say thank you, because I wouldn't have found that place without her. All my life, there's been a monster inside me that chews up all the love I'm given and whispers, it's not enough. It's not enough. That monster doesn't live there anymore. I kicked him out that day. And every now and then he shows up and wants to move back in, but I tell him, no, there's no room for you here anymore. Then I send him love and wish him well. Our stories reveal ourselves. Stories connect us to God, to others, and to the world around us. When our spirits become disconnected, stories can bring healing. God heals through stories.